These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, 150 years went by in a flash. But in between Marduk returning to Babylon and the glorious conquest of Sealand, there was a brief montage of reconstruction, wherein Babylonia was able to recover at least partially from the devastating depopulation and destruction to become a major economic and cultural power once again, respected all across the Near East. But as we said at the close of the last episode, there are caveats to this. We start today with the reign of Kara Indash, successor and probably son of the previous king, Agam III. With him, we definitely see the highs of this period, for he rebuilds the great Ayana temple in the city of Uruk, the massive palace temple to the goddess Ishtar, which would stand until the Seleucid Empire a thousand years hence. The city was partially reoccupied for a time, pretty much just by priests and support personnel, which is actually a testament to the resources of the Babylonian government at this time, that it could support these far-flung temples in remote regions. Likely not just at Uruk, but under various Kassite kings, it seems that many of the old temples of Sumer were reoccupied and renovated under the apparent assumption that even if the cities were mostly ruins at this point, the temples themselves were still the houses of the gods. This is, of course, both a remarkable display of wealth and piety, as well as a deeply conservative way to show off, very neatly encapsulating the best of Kassite Babylon. Of course, I keep saying Kassite Babylon. I should probably mention that this is only one of the many titles held by these kings. Kara Indash, on the very temple to Ishtar that I was just discussing, listed his titles as Mighty King, King of Babylonia, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Kassites, and King of Karduniash. Mighty King, of course, doesn't really mean anything, it's just fluffery, and King of Babylonia is pretty self-explanatory. We've seen King of Sumer and Akkad ever since the Akkadian Empire, and even though these regions haven't really been irrelevant geopolitically for a little while now, the kings still claim them, and they're technically correct. King of the Kassites is an important title, for even though we've been focusing on the Babylonian side of their kingship, each king in this dynasty rules over the various still nomadic Kassite groups, or at least claims to rule over all of them. Whether they actually rule over every single one in practice is pretty unlikely. These Kassite subjects were likely just as important, if not more so, than their Akkadian citizens in the cities. Though, since the Kassite tribes built nothing and wrote nothing, there's very little we can say about them. That final title, though, King of Karduniash, might seem a bit of a mystery. In some places, it seems to be an alternate Kassite language name for the city of Babylon, or perhaps the region of Babylonia. In other places, it seems like it might be a district in Babylonia, perhaps a heartland in which the Kassites tended to live, which gets used as a metonymy for the nation as a whole, the way we might nowadays refer to a White House policy when we simply mean a policy of the U.S. government. Karduniash is often the name used for this kingdom in international relations, but for simplicity's sake, we'll be mostly sticking with Babylon and Babylonia in this podcast. 
Kara Indash was more than just a builder, though. He is the king right at the start of a new diplomatic order. While the dates are very hard to nail down, it appears that Kara Indash was the first king to make formal diplomatic contact with the court of the Egyptian pharaoh. This is not a small thing. The king of Babylon was considered in diplomatic terms the equal of the pharaoh in every bit of correspondence that we still have, and the ability to deliver diplomatic gifts across the Near East was in this era the mark of a major nation. However, in this same glorious moment, we have a stark reminder of just how Babylonia looked to outsiders. Pharaoh Tutmos III recorded his campaign in the most extensive detail of any military campaign up to this point in history, and the surviving records of his life are a wonderful archaeological treasure. In them, he details the expedition we've already mentioned back in episode 66, where the Egyptian army set out to the Euphrates River to discover and attack the rising Mitanni Empire. And when Tutmos came to Mesopotamia on his grand tour, he looked downriver, metaphorically speaking, and he saw nothing worthy of his attention, making no mention at all of the Babylonian kingdom, and seeing no real signs of civilization here at all, sometime around the year 1450 BCE, well into what looks from internal sources to be the growth period for Babylon. Tutmoth's mentions that when he arrived with his mighty army, many nations sent tribute to him, recognizing the power of Egypt, supporting them against the Mitanni, and trying to get on the good side of this massive, terrifying army. In this, the Egyptians make no record of what they received from Babylon. They preserved no correspondence from Babylon at this point, and they seem to have ignored the kingdom, which had nominally united Mesopotamia almost completely at this point. We know of Kara Indash's diplomatic intercourse with the pharaoh only from later records, which cite him as the king who had initially opened these relations. But as we can see, for all that Babylon looks like a shining, splendid city from the inside, the entire Mesopotamian region is still so badly depopulated that from the outside, it appears to be substantially less significant than the Mitanni and Hittites at the same time. Still, we shouldn't take too much from this, as Kara Indash will be remembered by the Kassites as one of the greatest kings of the dynasty. All we can say about him is that he built some nice buildings and did some diplomacy, but at this point, Babylon appears to have been on a pretty much uninterrupted upswing for at least a century, and he behaved competently in managing the accumulated wealth of generations to rebuild much of the still devastated infrastructure throughout Babylonia, and especially the holy temples of old Sumer. One of the most interesting attempts to quantify this compares land under development at the height of the Kassite dynasty to land under development at the height of Old Babylon, and estimates that in various regions, between 25 and 40% less land is being used now in the Kassite period. It's hard to say what that translates to in terms of population. This time period is just too poorly attested to make any serious guesses. But despite the upward trajectory visible in the successes of the Kassite kings, there is no doubt that a substantial gap exists that this dynasty will, for whatever reason, never be able to close.
Now, at some point, Kara Indash died and was succeeded by his son, Kadashman Harbe. Kadashman Harbe is claimed in later chronicles to have been born from a union between Kara Indash and a daughter of the Assyrian king. However, the specific king is claimed to have been the famous Asher Ubalit, presumably the first of his name, despite the fact that this makes an absolute mess of the chronological sequence of Babylonian and Assyrian kings as reconstructed by modern scholars. That said, our chronology has been shaky in multiple places already this far, and you should best be aware that there is quite a lot of uncertainty in all of these matters. Now, even though it would throw other parts of our chronology off by decades, it is in fact possible that Kadashman Harbe was the grandson of Ashur-Ubalat, or it's possible that he was the son of another king of Assyria, though by our conventional chronology, Assyria is now deep in decline up in the north, having been vassalized by the Mitanni some time ago. Regardless of his parentage or chronological difficulties, Kadashman Harbe is quite like his predecessors. He ruled over a generally quiet Babylonia, slowly growing its prosperity with a significant canal network and more reconstructions. His chief patronage accomplishment is bringing back the city of Nippur to life, or at least the ancient and holy temples there, after having been completely abandoned for some three centuries. Of course, after hearing me bang on about how Sumer became an unlivable desert for so many episodes, you may be wondering why anyone bothered to resettle these lands at all. But in fact, it seems likely that having given Sumer a few hundred years to mostly lay fallow, free from intensive agriculture, this may have allowed the land to naturally leach itself from the previous millennium of salt buildup. Nippur, Uruk, and a few of the other ancient cities of Sumer would never again enjoy the blessings that made this small region the cradle of civilization, but they are again livable with a bit of Kassite patronage to refound and reconstruct the infrastructure. In fact, we will see at least two more cycles of exploitation, desertification, abandonment, and then return in Sumer in ancient times. And I'm actually completely ignorant of the region's history after the rise of Islam, so it may well have happened again more recently. I have no idea. Anyway, Kadashman Harbe runs the risk of being an obscure, nearly forgotten king, ruling in quiet prosperity, except for one major incident. At some point in his reign, there was a major sack of the city of Uruk by a tribe of people known as the Satayans. We know very little about the Satayans themselves, but we can associate with them with a number of people who are going to be playing major roles in the coming chapters of our story, being related socially to the Habiru or Apiru class of wanderers, and ethnically to the Arameans and Chaldeans. Now, don't worry if you don't know who any of these people are. A few centuries from now, you'll be sick of hearing about them all the time. But for those who do know what these groups mean for the future of the Near East, the Satayans and their sack of Uruk is the first time we see anyone related to these groups making a real mark in Mesopotamian history. Of course, this sacking isn't just of interest to historians. It seems to have sent up a cry of fury throughout Babylonia, with even the citizens crying out for vengeance. 
Indeed, it's believed by some scholars that the scenes of devastation in the Epic of Era, a tale of uncertain age which took its final form in the Assyrian period, were cultural memories of this very sack. Others, I should hasten to add, suspect the epic is much later, composed around 1000 BCE, about the various devastations of the 11 and 1200s, which is why we won't be looking at this tale for a while yet. In any case, this incident ends on a happy note, since the Sutaeans lived on the flat, open plains of the western deserts, and thus were able to be run down under the king's mighty chariots. Later chronicles claim that Kanashman Harbe annihilated their mighty forces and, in the process, conquered most of the way up the Euphrates River, establishing towns and fortified outposts in Syria to prevent the western nomads from being able to push into the Babylonian heartland ever again. I mean, perhaps not so happy an outcome if you were a western nomad, but a win for the city of Marduk without a doubt. Now, there are speculations that Kadashman Harbe did a number of other things, such as fight the Elamites and engage in diplomacy with Egypt and Assyria. But, as mentioned, the chronology is so confused and the sources are so fragmentary that it's likely that these events probably happened, but to other kings who are going to come later. What else Kadashman Harbe did remains a mystery, but at some point he died and he was succeeded by his son, the first in the line of Kassite kings who we have enough documents to really look at in detail. Kurigalzu I bore a name meaning something like Shepherd of the Kassites, Galzu being the Kassite word for the land they came from, which in Akkadian turned into something like Kashu, which we in English have turned into Kassite. It should not be forgotten in all this that though these men ruled over Babylon, they were not just Kassite in origin, but indeed there was a substantial Kassite population living in the unsettled portions of Mesopotamia at this time, who were likely the primary, though undocumented, focus of these kings. Still though, from Kurigalzu, we have some of the best documented evidence for a massive, multi-generational building project, one which definitely began under his predecessors, though he claims to have finished many things, though these were likely continued under his successors as well. He continued to patronize and improve the temples that had already been rebuilt in Sumer at Nippur and Uruk, and may have been the one to start work rebuilding and reestablishing the ancient city of Ur as well. Perhaps also Eridu, though the claims for the latter are disputed. But not only did he build in Sumer, we have evidence of him re-establishing ancient houses of worship in partially or mostly abandoned cities throughout the Akkadian region as well, the northern cities of Adab, Dur, Kish, Sippar, and even the long-abandoned city of Akkad itself. Naturally, he also built up the city of Babylon itself, erecting temples and walls in all of these locations. All of this must have been fantastically expensive, but it's possible it paid for itself. For unlike the building projects of old Babylon, it's likely that the expansions that Kurigalzu is celebrating for himself were financed with the profits from reoccupying long-dormant farmland, not from the loot of conquest. 
Few of these sites were occupied to anywhere near the extent they were at their height, which means that these long dormant farmlands could, at least in theory, be rotated over the long term, preventing the land from getting poisoned while still providing acceptable yields to maintain the temples in these places. That said, he didn't rule completely without loot from conquest. It seems the Elamites of southern Iran are once again in the ascendancy, and a particular king named Herbatilia, of whom nothing else is known, seems to have sent a letter to Kurigalzu, taunting him and challenging him to a battle in the town of Dershulgi, near the border of their two states. Kurigalzu called up the chariots and infantry of the joint Kassite Babylonian military and met the Elamite king in battle, defeating him soundly and continuing on to conquer the city of Susa. When he got there and sacked the palace, he found a small agate tablet, a decorative piece that had been written by King Shulgi of the Ur III dynasty back around 2050 BCE to his mother and dedicated to the goddess Inanna, the Sumerian name for Ishtar. Kurigalzu wrote on the back of it that he recovered the tablet when conquering Susa and returned it to Mesopotamia over 500 years later, rededicating it to the goddess Ninlo. Of course, we must assume that he brought home more than just this single pretty rock. Surely he loaded cart after cart with plunder and slaves, just like every other conquering king of the Bronze Age. As far as we can tell, he took all of that wealth, or at least a substantial chunk of it, and spent it building a brand new capital city. This, we will remember, has a bit of tradition behind it. Akkad and Babylon were both built by ambitious conquerors as new cities, where the king could be in complete control and not need to worry about ancient political matters that bogged down any great ancient city. Additionally, founding a new city was a great way to show off one's wealth, as the Egyptians will see a generation from now when Akhenaten builds his great city of Amarna, or Akhetaten. This new city, named Dur-Kurigalzu after its founder, was not just spectacular, though. It was also strategically located at the intersection of some waterways with easy access to the Euphrates, Tigris, and Diyala rivers, giving the rulers a way to access trade, taxes, and troops throughout the kingdom. But we shouldn't pass by how impressive this city was either. It was filled to bursting with temples, palaces, well-dug canals, and mighty walls. But the jewel of it all was the great ziggurat of Dur-Kurigalzu, with a footprint of nearly 50,000 square feet, and sitting even today, 3,400 years later, a good 15 stories tall, 52 meters high. In fact, just by coincidence, Dur-Kurigalzu happens to be one of the best-preserved ancient ruins near the modern city of Baghdad. And as a result, Western European visitors, since at least the Middle Ages, have been seeing this massive ziggurat and mistaking it for the Tower of Babel, a mistake that can still be seen among certain of the less careful Bible archaeologists today. Of course, those of us who remember episode 1 know that the Tower of Babel myth does not come from Babylon or Dur-Kurigalzu, and indeed predates the written record itself. 
Anyway, Curry Galzu remained active on the diplomacy front as well, corresponding frequently with the other great powers of the Near East, at least Egypt and Assyria, and likely Mitanni and the Hittites as well. We don't have the actual letters yet, but we do have enough mentions from other sources to know that Curry Galzu received Egyptian gold, probably in exchange for sending his granddaughter off to join Pharaoh Amenhotep III's harem, or perhaps for some fine Kassite horses, always in short supply in these early years of equestrian charity. We also know that the Canaanite cities of the Levant attempted to contact Kuragalzu for Babylonian support against their Egyptian overlord. A request Kuragalzu seems to have not only denied, but also forwarded to the pharaoh himself to let him know about the growing unrest. It isn't, however, until after the death of Kuragalzu and his succession by his son Kadashman Enlil that we can start to see the actual documentation of these diplomatic exchanges. This is not actually because of anything that happens in Babylon, but rather because of a revolution occurring at the same time in Egypt. Though the full story of Pharaoh Akhenaten is far too complex and fascinating to get into in this podcast, the short version is that he instituted a one-man overhaul of the historic Egyptian religion to give primacy to a single god, the sun disk Aten. As part of this fairly controversial decision, he left the bitter politics of the previous capital and decided to emulate Kuragalzu by building his own splendid capital city. In his own time, it was called Aket Aten, but nowadays the modern community built on top of the site is called Amarna. However, after Akhenaten's death, most of his reforms were repudiated, and the capital, which had lasted as a city for only one generation, was completely abandoned. The upshot for us is that Egyptologists have a city which existed for only one generation and which was not generally destroyed afterwards, meaning that an absolute treasure trove of documents and physical evidence has survived in this town from this particular period, allowing it to be perhaps the most well-studied and well-understood time and place in the entire Bronze Age. What's more, it is the Egyptian capital city right as the international diplomacy of the great powers has just gotten into full swing, meaning that over 300 diplomatic correspondences have been recovered, collected, and translated, giving us an unparalleled window into ancient diplomacy. It is, by its very nature, quite focused on Egypt, but it's still an invaluable resource. Now, domestically, Kadashman Enlil mostly seems to have continued the building projects of his father, though with markedly less ambition, meaning that pretty much the only thing we have to say about his reign comes from the five letters that he sent to Akhenaten sometime during the 1360s BCE. And I should note that this is the first firm date that we've had since the sack of Babylon in 1595, since we can finally peg Kadashman Enlil to the much more well-understood Egyptian 18th dynasty. And we know from a fortunate document cache that the final year of his reign that he ruled for 15 years. It's been so long since we had the real, direct words of an ancient ruler that I'm just going to go ahead and read you out the first of these letters to close out the episode. It's more revealing to the situation of Babylonia and the character of Kadashman Enlil and matters of diplomacy than any summary that I could ever give you. 
The first letter reads, Speak to Kadashman Enlil, king of the land of Karduniash, my brother. It's important to remember here that the pharaoh and the king are only sort of actually brothers, and not really. Rather, this is an important diplomatic phrase that indicates that the two rulers saw themselves as approximately equal on the world stage. We will actually be seeing a letter from Assyria to the Hittite great king in which the Assyrian assertion of being part of the Brotherhood is harshly rebuked due to their inferior status. But that's for later. The letter continues, Thus Nibmu Areya which is one of the names of Akhenaten, which I'm surely butchering. The great king, king of the land of Egypt, your brother says, With me all is well. May all be well with you, with your house, with your wives, with your sons, with your senior officials, with your horses, with your chariots, and in the midst of your territories, may all be exceedingly well. With me all is well, with my house, my wives, my sons, my officials, my horses, my chariots, and my troops. It is all very well within my territories as well. Now this is a fairly standard formulaic greeting, but most interesting is that it explicitly outlines all the things which a Bronze Age king should be concerned about, at the same time demonstrating clearly that rulership is an intimate and personal thing. A man's senior officials and territories are as much an extension of the household as are his wife and children. It's easy for us to get caught up in discussions of the vast bureaucracy and large-scale constructions of these nations and forget just how direct and personal was their monarchy. Anyway, the message continues. Now, I have heard the message which you have sent me concerning your proposal, saying you, Pharaoh, seek my daughter for your wife. But my sister, whom my father already gave you, is supposed to be there with you. Yet no one has seen her now. No one knows if she's alive or dead. This is what you sent me in your tablet. These are your words. And now let us pause here, because... This is the Egyptian archive. We typically only have one side of the conversation. However, the pharaoh and his scribes are frequently kind enough to write out quotes from what they're replying to, likely because the message would have taken so long to make the round trip that the center himself may need to be reminded what was the matter. Anyway, the pharaoh continues... But when have you sent a dignitary who knows your sister, who can converse with her and identify her? Sure, you've sent two men, but the men you sent are non-entities. One was a man from Zawara, the other was a donkey herder from some obscure land. Not a one of them knows her who was close to your father and can properly identify her. Moreover, as for the envoys that returned to you and said she's not your sister, not a one of them knew her and could tell that she was truly alive. Something was given to these messengers for delivery to her mother. Was this not passed on? As for your writing, saying, You spoke to my envoys while your wives were assembled, standing before you, saying, Behold your mistress who's standing before you while my envoys did not recognize her. Was it my sister who is like her? And now you wrote, saying, my envoys did not recognize her, and you say, so who has identified her? 
Why don't you send your dignitary who will tell you the truth, the welfare of your sister, who is here? Then you can trust the one who enters in to see her house and her relationship with the king. And when you write saying, perhaps it was the daughter of some lowly person, either one of the Cascans or a daughter of the land of Hanigalbat, that being another name for Matani, or perhaps of the land of Ugarit, which my envoys saw, who can trust that she is like her? This one did not open her mouth. One cannot trust them in anything. These are your words, and if your sister is dead, then why would they conceal her death, and why would we present another? Surely the great god Amun knows your sister is alive. So in summary, it seems that the pharaoh is seeking another wife from a new generation of kings in Babylon. He did like to collect women from around the world as part of his diplomacy, or perhaps as his pharaonic benefits package. But it seems Babylon has not heard from the last woman they sent over there. Pharaoh, however, shoots back saying that the sister is still in the capital. It's just that the messengers Kadashman Enlil sent were idiots. Now, there are two possibilities here. One is that Babylon has made a terrible blunder, selecting morons for an important diplomatic envoy. Now, don't discount this possibility, after all. The number of willing volunteers among people old enough to make the journey are probably quite small, and the number of young, brash fools who happen to have the king's ear and are opportunistic enough to jump at the chance for a trip to exotic Egypt are probably fairly large. Now, the other possibility is that the sister has simply died, and for whatever reason, Pharaoh doesn't want to admit it tried and failed to fool the messengers, and is trying to maintain the charade by blaming those same messengers. Either way, it reinforces the extent to which, when we talk about great nations like Babylon and Egypt, we imagine some sort of vast and impersonal system, like playing a video game. But in fact, high-level diplomacy is just a bunch of spoiled rich kids, some of whom are trying to be diligent and some of whom are not trying to win an endless series of pissing contests with each other. That is to say, these kings were humans, acting in human ways. And it is interesting to see both men so important, behaving so normally, and men so ancient, presenting a situation that would not be out of place in a modern soap opera or romantic comedy. In any case, the first letter has a second part. Concerning all my wives, which are which the kings of the land of Egypt keep in the land of Egypt. As you wrote, saying, As for my daughters who are married to kings that are my neighbors, if my envoys go there, they converse with them, and they send to me a present. The one that is thus... Ah, the rest is lost. These are your words. Perhaps the kings who are your neighbors are rich and mighty. Your daughters acquire something with them and they send it to you. But what does she have, your sister who is with me? But as soon as she acquires something, she'll send it to you. Is it fitting that you give your daughters in order to acquire a garment from your neighbors? Now, that bit's a little bit garbled, but that last bit, are you selling daughters for money, is the key here. And the answer, of course, is yes, that's exactly what he's doing. Daughters are commodities to be sold, traded, and exchanged for diplomatic and financial benefits. And Pharaoh almost certainly knows this, 
He just doesn't want to pay up, as we'll be seeing later. As for you citing the words of my father, leave it. Don't speak of his words. Moreover, establish friendly brotherhood between us. This is what you wrote. These are your words. Now, we're brothers, you and I, both of us. But I got angry concerning your envoys because they speak to you, saying, Nothing is given to those who of us who go to Egypt. But those who come to me, does one of the two go without taking silver, gold, oil, garments, everything nice, more than from any other country? But he speaks untruth to the one who sends them. The first time the envoys went off with your father, and their mouths were speaking untruths. The second time they went forth, and they're speaking lies to you. So I myself said, if I give something or if I don't give them, they're going to speak lies either way. So I made up my mind about them. I did not give to them anything any further. And as you wrote, saying, You sent to my envoys, Has your master no troops? The girl he gave me is not beautiful. These are your words. Not so. The envoys are speaking to you untruths in this matter. If they are warriors or if they are not, it's known to me. Why is it necessary to ask him if you have troops or if you have horses? No, don't listen to your two envoys that you sent here in whose mouths are lies. Perhaps they are afraid of you, and so they tell lies so as to escape your punishment. And you spoke, saying, He placed my chariots among the chariots of the city rulers. You did not review them separately. You humiliated them before the throng which is thus, and you did not review them separately. I tell you, though, your chariots are here. All the horses of my country are here. All the chariot horses had to be supplied. Now, the end of this letter gets a bit garbled from the damage, but it appears that these two envoys have done a lot of damage to Babylonian-Egyptian relations, either through lying or through telling the truth that the pharaoh didn't want communicated. All the way since the very first episode of this podcast, messengers have been necessary for all sorts of communication, really the mortar that holds the bricks of government together. But of course, the messengers were themselves human. Just as we, 3,500 years later, can hardly say if the words of Pharaoh or the words of the messengers carry more weight, it's likely that Kadashim and Enlil faced a similar dilemma. After all, it is possible that Pharaoh Akhenaten was even more remote and unknowable to a Babylonian contemporary than he is to us nowadays. After all, we can go listen to Dominic Perry's fantastic History of Egypt podcast, and he's got something like 15 episodes devoted to the life and times just of Pharaoh Akhenaten, and get an excellent sense of his character, ambitions, and political constraints. And honestly, if you uh, are at all interested in Amarna or Akhenaten or Egypt, uh, he's recently finished this Akhenaten section, and it's absolutely amazing, I have to tell you. Anyway, as revealing as all this is, this is only the beginning of the matter of Egyptian daughters and Babylonian negotiations. Not only will Kadeshman Enlil continue in his statecraft, his son Berneburiash II will as well. 
Of course, this Burnaburry Ash will also have some internal drama of his own, being one of the more interesting and well-documented gruelers of the Cassite period. So join us next week as we read out even more of the Amarna letters, the actual words of actual ancient people as they reshape world politics, mostly in service of trying to acquire gold and women for themselves. Thank you for listening.